Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, Champagne Sharks. How's it going? This is Trevor. We have one of our more popular returning guests. Yasmin Nair. I like to treat every episode like it's somebody's first. So I'm sure most of you know who she is, but I will allow her to say for herself uh, who she is and where to find her. Sure. Thank you, Trevor. Always happy to be back on Champagne Sharks. I'm a writer and I live in Chicago and my website is yasminnaya.com. <laughs> that's, uh, I write. That's, that's really mostly what I do. <laughs> Right, very well, I must say, and prolifically. You've been really on a, tear, on a tear lately. Thank you, thank you. Yes, I recently, uh, with the help of a very generous friend and benefactor, was able to move into my own place. And let me just say, Virginia Woolf was right. <laughs> Every writer needs a room of her own, and it's been amazing. And that has, I think, just having a sense of stability has really helped as well. So, yes, if you're someone who's wondering how to help your writer friends, help them with rent <laughs> that's the way to go yeah yeah i mean it's so it's so important to have that uh space physical and mental i think you need physical space uh to get a certain amount of uh, psychic space and that's very important yes so, good, good for you absolutely one of the things that we we're going to talk about but i mean we didn't really have a super set topic we were going to play it kind right. of loose but uh one of the big things was going to be um a bad art friend and i actually invited that uh, Twitter account that I uh, showed you. I only just found it, but that whole that whole Twitter account about uh, what's it called? Uh, Kidneygate. Uh, yes, Kidneygate. Yeah, I invited them on, and they're considering it, so that'll be nice. Mm -hmm, great. So, mm -hmm. so you know, uh, we're gonna use that episode to get into like the minutia of it all, but we won't want to talk to you about what it says about you know publishing and media and all that stuff structurally and you know systemically also what it says about race and also any other topics that mm -hmm. come to mind like you know we're not beholden to stay on that topic the whole time but i mean i guess the most important thing is i don't want to be wearing those inside baseball types of uh accounts that just talks about stuff and assumes everyone's plugged into media twitter so i guess the first thing we have to do is to give a summary of what this is but it's not easy no no it's not i think the biggest well perhaps the biggest takeaway is writers a lot of writers are like a lot of people they're assholes there are no good people in this particular story and it's yes it is complicated isn't it to try and uh, boil it down um i what is it about right is it's about a writer named dawn dorland and another writer named, why am I forgetting her name? Um, oh, um, Sonia, Sonia Larson. Sonia. Sonia Larson. It's interesting because she's technically the uh, more famous one, but uh, yeah. Right, because Dawn Darlin hasn't actually, as I understand it, hasn't actually published anything. She's just taken a lot of, uh, I don't mean to say just, but she has taken a lot of writing courses and she's been involved in writing communities, etc. And I think the long and the short of it is that Dawn Dorland uh, opened, as it turns out, she actually opened a Facebook group to which she invited people, giving them the option to leave if they did not want to stay. I bring that up because Sonia Larson and her friends have claimed that Dawn Dorland just invited them and then gave them no option but to stick around and listen to her going on about her kidney donation. So Dawn Dorland is white. Sonia Larson is um, biracial, as I understand it. She's half Asian, half half Asian American, and half white. Um, and that racial dynamic is important for some, and for perhaps it is important actually to the to the story. Don Dorland offered her kidney in this program. I forget what it's called, but it's essentially for I think it's called undirected donors donation or something, which is to say a lot of kidney donations go to people 
very specific people. It might go to your aunt, your uncle, etc. But there, there is a whole system set up so that your donation just goes to someone you don't know, a complete stranger, etc. And Don Doland apparently made a big deal about this, apparently falling into the white savior complex narrative. And Sonia Larson essentially did filch the letter that Don Doland wrote to the unknown donor at the time, and which you know, people can go read that letter, et cetera. But Sonia Larson turned all of this into a story, which by the way, Trevor, I have to say, it is not a good story. It's actually a pretty uh, shitty short story. You know, that's what I heard, but this is going to sound really bad. This is going to sound really bad because you should not make assumptions. But when I saw the picture of the Chunky Monkeys, which is her writing group. Yes, and then, I saw and that. Then, and then I read a synopsis of some of her other work. I already knew the story was going to be bad because I just feel like I know that type of writer and the type of writer is pretty popular. Like it's gotten to the point. It's almost an inverse relationship where if you're like really popular in those types of lit circles, like not just some kind of writer who lives somewhere and just writes, does not engage in the community, but those people who are always embroiled in the, in the publishing drama, like, you know, Roxanne Gay and, and those types who are always just in the um, Mean Girls Club and yes. have a following, they always invariably to me write badly. I have not tried Celeste Ang, so I don't know if she's an exception. I don't know how she writes, but uh, everyone else in that fits that description, when I tend to try their writing, it's always like, okay, this is just really horrible navel-gazing, um, bourgeois anxiety it became the selection for, I think it's Boston's one story. You know, we, we have something like that in Chicago where the public library runs a one city, one book program where everyone, and I think it's a lovely idea, communal reading, right? So, so the library will pick a book, a novel, for instance, and the whole city ostensibly uh, reads and discusses it together, which I think is a fantastic exercise, actually. Um but this was part of that, I think, for Boston or perhaps for a small mini program where everyone would read the story. So when I said that to a friend of mine who's much more familiar with publishing, she said, oh, I knew it would be a bad story right there and then because that particular program is all about this narrative of diversity, inclusion. So this, as any story that either is written towards it or gets picked by that program is inevitably going to be exactly what the kindest is. And the kindest is really bad. So, but again, before I go on though, just let readers know what happened, which is that Sonia Larson filched Dawn Dolan's words, put them almost verbatim actually in this short story. Um, Behind the scenes of all of this are a series of lawsuits actually initiated in the first by Sonia Larson and then taken up by Don Dolan, who said, you know, this is my property, et cetera. So that's sort of the background story of all of that. But the New York Times then did this long story about all of this. And if you read the Times story, I've only read it once and I'll have to go back to it if I find it interesting enough. But the New York Times story is pretty slanted in favor of Sonia Larson. And it is very much about depicting Don Dorland as this ridiculous white savior woman, et cetera, which is what the short story, using different names and circumstances, also narrativizes. However, um, as readers, as listeners are probably aware, and if you're not, bless your heart, you shouldn't be. <laughs> but if listeners are aware, this whole story has taken on a hundred and different, 110 different permutations because every day we, quote unquote, we, whoever the we is, mostly the Twitterati, I suppose, are discovering new details, all of which actually are now um, tending to make the story much less rosy for Sonia Larson in the sense that she's coming across as a much more entitled, manipulative um what is the word I'm looking for? Does it, is it, is it bitch? Um, she's coming <laughs> across not particularly well, very manipulative. I think that I didn't even see what you sent me this morning and, until you sent it to me, which is the revelation that apparently she applied for, I think the NEH, is it? Oh, um, it, was, it was the NEA, uh, for people who don't know, it's National Endowment of the Arts. Um, it's an it's a NEA grant, and I believe it was $25,000 uh, the New York Times story just made it seem like she got nothing but four hundred and twenty something dollars. Yes, four hundred twenty-five dollars, and but they left out that she got 
an NEA grant for $25,000. And it was solely based on that story. That story was the only thing in it. So you can't even say it was one of wow. like three stories. So um, yeah, I mean, and it's public information because it's part of the discovery. And if, mm-hmm. and in, in the link that I sent you, there's a link to Scribd. Uh, people upload a lot of public court documents. To, so, I mean, I don't know if when this guy was writing the article, maybe it wasn't part of the discovery yet or what. But I mean, I don't see how it could not have been. But it right. just seems like almost, for, especially for an article that long, it wasn't like some kind of clickbaity mm-hmm. thousand word, you know, piece. It was pretty long. So I'm really wondering what was happening there. Sure. It was sure. Sorry. And I'm done. It was pretty it was pretty long. And the you know, the the main incidents related to the story, which is to say Don Dolan talking to Sonia Larson, the lawsuits being initiated, all of that actually happened around 2016. So which is to say by then there was a lot of ground to cover and when you're a journalist and you return to a prior event, of course, then you that means that your editor has already told you, well, obviously, this is not time bound, right? So it's not as if the article had to be finished, say, in two weeks in order for it to be timely. This was actually, in some ways, an investigative piece about something that already happened, what, by now, five, six years ago. So the writer had plenty of time and opportunity to find, especially something related to the NE, the NEA. Um, so I, I think it was probably a deliberate choice because the story about a white savior lady screwing over an Asian American writer is much more attractive than the massive complexity of what is happening. And I think also, in as, as we said this morning, I also don't think that the actual complexity of the story is even playing out because most people aren't, don't, aren't really interested in that. And I think it, what the story does is to foster this idea about writing and publishing being all about individual people and about their stories, either of heroism or of creative genius or assholery. Whereas I think there are bigger contexts that have been ignored. For sure. And I'm also curious, uh, you know, I always hate, I always hate articles and questions that start with, you know, as a blankety blank, what do you feel about? But I'm going to in, break my rule and indulge in that this time because I think it's so front and center in this story that I kind of almost have to ask the question, like uh, how you feel about this weird weaponization of Sonia's race, not just by her, but by other white people. It's just this weird. It's like, you're white. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, yeah, look, look at you, typical white person. Um you know, attacking a person of color. And then you look at the person, the person is just like uh, translucent, you know, they're not even white. It's like, what what are you even doing here? Like, what, what kind of virtue signaling are you, are you doing right now? It's very bizarre. I think that is exactly what it is. And I think we're at this moment in time where there's a lot of performance around race and a lot of performance on all sides, white people and non-white people. And then there's the performance of, but ha ha ha, none of this actually matters. So it's never about race. Um, I just read it. Would, I haven't quite read the entire article yet. So maybe, I, well, whatever. Jenny Zhang, I think, wrote something about the weaponization of identity through the victim identity, which is true, but then... Was that in Gawker? Yes, yes, yes. And I don't know if she... Do they even acknowledge the fact that actually all of this is happening precisely because white people demand victimization from people of color? There is no way to be a writer these days. And I know this (laughs) because I have paid for it in different ways for being a writer who does not use and talk about her identity. And then when I do, (laughs) when I do point out, as I recently did (laughs) with a white lady who snarked at my accent, um, you know, when I recently pointed out that Lighter Gold, for instance, was being racist towards me, um, I uh, I was dismissed as someone who was weaponizing her identity, which I thought was fascinating. So there is no out for anyone in all of this, which is to say, you know, I think everyone likes to talk about identity politics, ignoring the fact that it's deployed on all sides and that in the world of fiction, we seem incapable of reading work 
by non-white people if they're not about constantly going on about the pain caused by their identity and so on. So I have, again, as with everything else in the story, I have very little sympathy with anyone on any side because I think they're all being assholes. Everyone is weaponizing everything. Sonia Larson's emails um, and WhatsApp conversations are quite illuminating, even just the ones that I've seen. And I, I think there are many more that I haven't seen yet because everyone's talking about mm. them. Have you, seen the text with Celeste, have you seen the text with Celeste Ang? Yes, the recent one that you yeah, sent pretty, on. Yes, yeah, that was, was and where she outright laughs, yes, and says that this is exactly what I'm doing. She's keenly aware of what she's doing. And I don't think that's uh, in any way uh, against the grain for most writers, off color or white folk, honestly. I think that's what every, I think there's, so I think there are a couple of other you know, bigger, if I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to knock this conversation, right? Or this, the grounds of this particular conversation about what's happening between these two people. And also, of course, the racial uh, issues are really important. So I don't mean to knock them as unimportant, but I also think that a lot of this is amenable for people as conversation points because it's there, all, a lot of this is amenable to Twitter. And I think what's interesting to me is that a lot of the commentary coming after, excuse me, coming after the New York Times piece is about Twitter conversations. And even the New York Times piece, in a way, was designed to be a Twitter piece, right? It was designed to be. But there's, there are a couple of contexts that I think we could focus on. One of them I actually had not thought about until a fellow writer, Christian Lawrenson, who writes a lot of book reviews and, and articles. Um, and I linked to his uh, set of tweets a few days ago. Christian Lawrenson points out that a lot of this, you know, we could focus on the two women and so on. But a lot of this leaves out this whole creative writing industrial complex, which allows people, for instance, and I'm again, Christian, if you're listening to this, I apologize if I have dulled or reduced your points. But a lot of this conversation is about the individual women. But you know, you have someone like Don La Don Don Larson, uh, like Dawn, let's just use her first name, who are compelled to think that they are they can be writers. And so this keep, you know, they keep signing up for writing programs and writing workshops and so on. And a lot of this is about this kind of creative writing industrial complex, which allows people to imagine themselves as writers while, and you know, this is extending Lawrence's point, while I think leaving aside or leaving out entirely the fact that the publishing industry is ruled by a whole number of factors over which you really have no control and you can take all the programs and all the creative writing workshops you want, but there are certain things that will always, always keep you out. That's, I think that's one thing. And the, and the other issue, I think, is simply that the ways in which the publishing world depends upon this, huh, you know, this kind of embodiment of writers and it de demands that writers yield their personal lives and their traumas and whatever it is. And they always have to be deposited at the feet of the publishing world in order to be seen as relevant. And there's a way in which taste is being made, right? Literary taste has been constructed in very particular ways. And then even outside of those contexts, I think, you know, we could talk about the whole, and this is also related to the, you know, the, the Christian's point, which is we could also talk about the ways in which the world of quote unquote creative writing came into came into existence. There's a there are a couple of books about, for instance, the University of Iowa Writing Workshop, which is one of the most famous writing workshops, writing programs out there, and the fact that it was a Cold War invention deliberately employed by the CIA, et cetera, et cetera, blah, blah, blah. There's all of that context. But I think the bigger, but even within that, putting aside the political context in which writing workshops were created, the other problem is that the world of writing is actually very conservative. It's filled with conservative asshole men, for instance, for the most part, white men, for the most part. It's politically not in the least bit radical, but it has this aura of radicalism because everyone assumes, oh, well, you know, creative writers, they're just out there. They're at the edge of political discourse. But every 
you know, when I was at Purdue and, you know, we had a creative writing program, every English department has a creative, almost every English department, for instance, has a creative writing program. And a lot of them are all about sexual politics that look liberatory. So they all sleep around with each other. And that's considered some sort of high mark of political radicalism. But then when you have conversations with them at the bar and restaurants over lunch, you realize, my God, these people are politically really conservative. They're very neoliberal. They're very fond of the status quo. They're really all about achieving a certain kind of middle-class existence or more through writing. And the other issue here for me is that writing has become something akin to the influencer world. Everyone wants to be a writer the way everyone wants to be an influencer. Everyone imagines that writing leads to a world of immense money and profits and so on. So there's this weird celebrity discourse that has also sprung up around writing. And what that then means, of course, is that there's a lot of envy and anger and sheer malice amongst writers, especially towards their own. I started reading Sally Rooney only because I saw so many reviews slamming her. Now, mind you, Sally Rooney doesn't have to care. She's highly successful. But I was intrigued by the many negative reviews. And then I read the work and I said, well, actually, this, this work is really good. And then I went back to the reviews and I realized none of them are actually taking on the work substantively. And if they are, they're actually misrepresenting it. And it's mostly about how dare Sally Rooney become a successful novelist as a young white woman in her 30s. Right. Oh, and it was all it's, it's, it's filled. If you read the negative reviews, Trevor, it is they are filled with pure spite. So much now, of it of is them, pure high school and yes. and and high school popularity trauma. Like, you know, they just can't get over that, you know, some white girl was the cheerleader in high school. I, I think <laughs> that's so much of this stuff is. And what pisses me off about it is they do this stuff with people who are so attackable for legitimate reasons like, like there's so many things about this person that you can actually be talking about that would make <laughs> a good substantive story instead of the right. fact that you know uh your weird you know issues with with uh white women like, like there's so many actual real issues right. about white women that, that you could be talking about and instead there's just this weird vengeful pettiness high school revenge tone to a lot of supposed critics that i just can't take anymore it's become a worse over, I would argue, over the last 20 odd years. And interesting. Now, let me be clear. I think writers have always been nasty to their own since, you know, to use a high school phrase, since time immemorial. <laughs> that is just in the nature of writers as people. They've always been jealous of each other, etc. all of the rest. But I think sometimes in the early aughts, uh, you saw a what I think was a fantastic democratization of the book review process, right? So you had a ton of uh, book reviewers everywhere who were not always just aligned with, for instance, the New York Times or the London Review of Books and so on. And you saw a certain democratization, but a lot of it was also about the snarky review. And some of the snarky reviews were great to read, perhaps insubstantial in terms of what they actually addressed, but they were fun to read. And often they were very important because it took down the literary, quote-unquote, the idea of the literary great, who's often, as we know, a white male figure. But I think over the years, the snarky review has become a genre unto itself. And as we know, the snarky review now extends not only to books or to movies, but even to, for instance, restaurants, right? The most One of the most famous restaurant reviews is by the New York Times reviewer who took on Guy Fieri and demolished it. And that became, and it has now since, you know, got, the pendulum has swung the other way where people have recuperated Guy Fieri and then it swung the other way again <laughs> because there were some issues with Guy Fieri. I can't remember what they are. These things always ebb, ebb and uh, you, they're always like waves, right? So I think that the discourse in general, it's not that it has become a lot worse, but I think that it has become more systematized. In, the, in other words, it strikes me that there's a certain set of readers. And hopefully, thankfully, hopefully, these are not the typical reader. But there are a lot of readers who don't really want to articulate how they feel about any creative production, anything, unless they know what others think. And that I think it, is where, right? This it reminds me of a, it reminds me of a, a song lyric I heard once, like twenty years ago, and it stayed with me because it was such a good lyric. And there was uh, some people uh, won't dance unless they know who's singing. I always thought that was such a good, 
such a good line. I think it applies to so many things. Exactly, exactly. And I think we all suffer from that to some extent. Sure, you know, we're all a little nervous about, well, is this something that I can like uh, publicly or should I just dance to it privately? Um, But I think it is ruining a general public discourse in terms of taste and it's about um, turning taste making into a production and a consumerist activity on its own. Um, not to be dire about it, I, I, I do think that a lot of people still think for themselves. The fact that Sally Rooney is incredibly successful, <laughs> despite all of this bullshittery, is proof of that. We could look, you know, and yeah, that's. Um, but then on the other hand, we also have to think about down the line what that does, right? So. Will we actually see really interesting work that exists for its own sake without always trying to figure out if it fits into the narrative that seemed to be demanded by the Twitterati, for instance? That, to me, is the the bigger danger. It's not, oh, will poor Sally Rooney suffer in her sales? That's not an issue for me. For me, the issue is, what does all of this discourse do to the production of actually really interesting, daring work? And there's a reason why, for instance, I don't read much contemporary fiction, because most of it is so predictable. I I feel there's a problem that is bigger than politics, but I've been thinking about it in terms of politics, but also because Nowadays, politics is so intertwined with everything else anyway these days. Like, this is we're in this weird world now where like politics, commerce, and uh, academia have just melded into this giant industrial complex, and people just move back and forth like a, between a porous uh, membrane. It's just like there's no boundaries of anything anymore. Like, no one. I mean, the days of someone just being a professional critic, you don't really see that uh-huh. like you used to, you know, like like where you're either a Pauline Kael or a Peter Travis, it's all you do. Like you're a critic, but you're also an activist, but your activism is just tweeting uh, the most banal yeah. talking points that you got from some um, public intellectual professor who uh, just tweets the most dumbed down versions of, uh, of uh, you know, social justice or sociology studies, you know, and then it, it just seems like this weird thing where uh-huh. I don't know what anybody's job is anymore. You know, you look at their <laughs> profile and they call those multi-hyphenates and, or there's a bunch of slash like activists slash actors slash writers slash stand-up comedian. And they're not good at anything, you know, but it's all kind of okay if you have the right politics and that right politics is this kind of dumbed down neoliberal version of, um, intersectionality where and where does it even mean anything because you're not reading any scholars or anything you're intersectional if you just either um are a minority woman especially if you're gay or you know you're a you're a queer uh minority or you can just be anything from a white woman to a white man but just acknowledge hey i listen to gay disabled black trans lesbian authors and somehow you're inter- you're intersectional because you've uh, I, I hate the word voices like, like you've censored the right voices and it's like wait mm. whether you agree with or disagree with uh, intersectionality it is an actual discipline like you don't just become intersectional because you have multiple identities everybody has multiple yes. identities you know or the, or because you read an author who has three marginalized identities but you're a white man and I think that type of politics is affecting everything like the type of mm-hmm. commercial art that gets made and i think it leads to what you just described about what people expect out of contemporary fiction and what they expect mm-hmm. even out of the reviews like for example i was watching squid game and i'm a big booster of squid game i think it's one of the few things that has gotten a lot of hype especially on netflix it's actually good good to know and then i have been trying to read the discourse about it and these mm-hmm. writers, and I feel like I should use the scare quotes, are writing things like, here's why Squid Game is sexist, because these two women <laughs> uh, didn't win. It's like, okay, that's not an analysis. Like, you know, it might be sexist. You got to have more than that than just say it didn't pander to the woman. But it's like, and then I'm going to end my point here, but I feel like everything now has to do with two things now. It's either affirmation or validation with... Uh, Affirmation, I was looking at the difference between the two words, and I read that affirmation is when somebody 
um, co-signs your ideas or your or your sentiments mm. or your your emotions, you know. So it's like, and you don't have to be in identity politics to you know uh, have affirmation politics. Because for example, there's some socialists who they're not part of any real life organization. They don't do organizing. They don't really get involved in practical politics, but they want to tweet all day about theory and to convince people that Marx was right, you know, and, and that they're doing their own affirmation politics. But, you know, affirmation yeah. is about there's be some kind of at least idea or emotional reaction or something that you want, uh, you know, approved of. Whereas validation is it's not even an idea. You just want your whole essence validated, you know, like like, like yeah. you just want someone to tell you that you have a right to exist. You have a right to have feelings and everything. And interesting, like even like white supremacists, I notice, you know, who always claim to hate like touchy feely stuff, even they're not immune to this because one of the new uh, slogans that's very popular with these new alt-right reactionary types is it's okay to be white. And that's so different than <laughs> white power. Like, like that's a very prominent <laughs> sign now. Like uh, it's, it's one of their main slogans and it just sounds so like kind of soft it's just weird but even with, with, the, with the black people you go from um black li- you go from like black power to black lives matter i mean that's a form of like, mm. validation like tell me that that's i true. i matter whereas before they were saying we actually want fuck power you. for yeah fuck you <laughs> and we want power for our group now it's like you know so so it's a long-winded right. way of saying that i think no, no, no. that undercurrent is behind so much of what you're talking yeah. about. Everything is done for affirmation and validation from the writers to the critics to the fans. It's a weird symbiotic relationship of those things. But I was just laughing when you said it's okay to be white. <laughs> yeah, and, and you, you can Google the slogan. You'll see a bunch of marches and people. It's a major, okay. major slogan. I just, I, you know, Trevor, I went to school in a town, uh, West Lafayette slash Lafayette, and the KKK would show up every year on the steps of the uh, of the of the courthouse for its annual um, <laughs> walk by or whatever the fuck it was parade. And I'm just laughing because you know we would show up to protest, and there was an inherent sense of danger and also an inherent sense of the horrific history of the KKK and I'm laughing because I just can't think of how and why it's okay to be white would have played out there because that just yeah okay to be just neutral it all but see this is the thing the right always knows how to take up what the left does and deploy it it's supremely clever I mean it is it knows how to weaponize shit the way that we have never done. Like, look at us on the left and look at, you know, the, the three big, oh, well, perhaps not the only three, but think about issues like immigration or queer issues where you still have trans and other LGBTQ people struggling for healthcare, for instance, in a pandemic. Uh, think about immigration, the fact that there isn't a single goddamn piece of legislation that actually helps immigrants, right? Think about any big, think about um, the prison industrial complex. There's been more work there done by abolitionists, certainly. But we, we every time we see a pushback, we see a resurgence, right? So the, when, for instance, as we know, okay, so, or, you know, it's okay to be white. Consider how the police forces everywhere are now using that kind of rhetoric that there's hatred towards cops. I'm like, really hatred towards cops? What are you talking about? But again, all of this is symptomatic of the fact that the right knows how to deploy the discourse that we create. And I'm laughing because there's something hysterically funny about all of this. It is ripe for a satirical novel, even though, you know, even though it is embedded in so much violence. But again, I think that that brings me back also to satire, the fact that satire can no longer exist. And I'll shut up for a second then. (laughs) No, no, no. I, I totally agree. It's like it's ripe for satire, but the type of people who would be hired to do that satire mm. on a big stage are just not equipped to do it because no they're not interested they have no curiosity they have no curiosity about well, other people mm-hmm. and no curiosity about themselves and, and it kind of shows they- even with sonia larson because mm. she got so many things wrong about <laughs> kidney donation in in her story and everything and she couldn't even be bothered to do a little yeah. bit of research into the life that she was 
ripping off. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're right. I did see some of that commentary about even the scars, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But, you know, you were talking about satire and the fact that people would not write great satire. The thing is, I can every anything satirical written, say, for Netflix or whatever counts as a network these days would immediately be fed through a focus group which would immediately say, oh, no, 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 you can't talk about, say, for instance, killing people and be satirical about it. Whereas I would argue that actually, no, in fact, that's why you should be satirical about it. We need really dark, dank humor in these times. Uh, we need it more than ever. And But I think there would be this layer of admonition, this layer of censorship, for lack of a better word, right? Which would say, no, no, you can't yes. go there. You can't satirize. Oh, no, you can't satirize Whereas you should actually, I don't know if satirize is even a word or if it's an SNL. No, it's a word. It's a word. (laughs) Uh, But 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 you know what else too? When you say admonition, that's another thing. There's this kind of thing where people can't understand that you can depict something without prescribing it. So if you did have to do, if you did do it, you would have to make them so cartoonish and then have somebody Uh like um, you know read them the riot act you know to, just to make it clear like someone will have to have this moment yeah. where they own them using think piece uh talking points yeah. like like an aaron sorkin-esque type of scene you know aaron sorkin used to always have his characters tell the right wing like a bunch of stats or whatever mm-hmm. and data and it's like hmm i remember you saying that you know the bible prescribes uh gay stuff but did you know about Matthew 314 that said this, and what about this and that? So excuse me, sir. I think maybe you're the one who doesn't know the Bible. You know, and as that type of kind of weird uh thing where the person is just cowed into submission by the other person's righteousness. I feel like even with Aaron Sorkin, at least he used to do that with stats and data. I think it was just as absurdly fantastical as anything else, but at least there was a desire to uh include data in there, which I don't think it works. I think if you could win debates with data like trump would not have gotten as far as he did like he just calls you like a stupid nickname and you look Uh idiotic you know and people like hillary are like well actually if you go to my site you'll see you know these stats and no one cares you know but this new stuff they don't even do that it's just okay like like i'll give an example i was watching this horrible new show the gossip girl revival and ah yes it was so it was so bad and i watched it to do an episode of tv <laughs> oh, this about is the it. one with all the multicultural cast right yes, yeah the yes. multicultural um but only the women are multicultural they pretty much keep the guys ah. right which makes it even well, kind of, of course because the guys are the white guys who are writing the fucking show and want to fuck all the black and brown girls got it exactly <laughs> exactly so it's like the, the dumbest diversity i've ever seen it's just basically just like um the white guy is getting to dip into everything. <laughs> that's the that's the diversity. It's very very funny that that that's that's what they did. I fuck women of all colors. That makes me the hippest dude on campus. Yeah. One of the funny thing about that is when I saw the show, I was like, I can't believe there's another show like this. And I was like, this show is as bad as the previous worst offender I've seen of this, which is a show called Quantico uh, with uh, Priyanka Chopra. That oh, was yeah. a big debut. And I was like, you left being like the biggest yeah. <laughs> star in India to come just be, you know, part of the, the white man's harem on TV. Like, like I'm like, this is such a, even though you're technically the head of this uh, show, it's just a show where all the guys are white and then they have uh, Muslim Muslim twins, you know, of um, Arabic descent, uh, Indian woman, a Latina, uh, a black woman, and an a- they brought an Asian woman second season. And it's just, all white guys, right? Then I then I found out it's the same showrunner. So this guy this is the second <laughs> rodeo doing the exact same uh, blueprint. What's interesting though is he's a white gay guy. That's what I find very interesting. So he's not even like a white straight mm. guy doing this, but he mm. uh, does this. But 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 anyway, just to finish my point, um, they have a scene where these old white theater guys are talking about you know theater, and then this young black girl who's supposed to be clearly the Tumblrina of the, the group for you know um, social justice types to identify with because you know you, you have to have you have to be affirmed all the time. So she's a total like fantasy insert. She's always right about everything. She just gets up where she's from what she's talking about. She's like, oh, theater is supposed to expand um, audiences and you know lift up the marginalized. Like first of all, that's not what theater is supposed to do. Theater is basically was. Just, uh, it needs to be with, good theater. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Like, like, like the origins of theater were just like, you know, things that people were doing for rich patrons. You're like, you know, like it wasn't made to create diversity or whatever. Like, you know, wh- wh- whatever. I'll go with it. And she goes and she goes to them. Yeah. What about people like uh, Fornes, you know, or or Albie? I was like, wait, Edward Albie, white Edward Albie, like Albie that has so many theaters and programs and grants named after him. He's a marginalized guy. Like, like you're lecturing old white queens about how they need to be more inclusive and diverse, and then you're naming the biggest, most prominent, like uh, white. I think it'll be Edward Albee's gay. Uh, that's your example of uh, a marginalized voice that they're. And that's what I mean about when I say they don't have, they don't even use facts anymore. They just use. Mm-hmm. I hate to sound like Ben Shapiro. They they have the Aaron Sorkin moments with just feelings. Yes, uh, feelings. Yes, um, yes. I've been actually thinking about feelings a lot as I <laughs> continue to write this long-standing review that I've had to finish up of Isabel Wilkerson's uh, book *Cast*, which is ostensibly about caste, but it's actually about her feelings and about being a Black woman and not having the privileges of whiteness, even though she's such a successful Black woman. But it's all about feelings. And this is not entirely original with me. Hazel Carby on the LRB podcast and in a in a review she wrote of the book, points out, along with her, uh, gosh, I can't remember the guy who did the podcast with her, but they both talk about the fact that the book is so much about feelings, right? It's all about Wilkerson feeling bad about the fact that she's Black, but not, and successful, but hasn't reached what white people, or she feels that she hasn't gotten what white people might she, have. She so wants on. validation. So feelings that, are validation a big again. part of this. Exactly. Yes, exactly, exactly. And as for, yeah, I mean, the, the theater is ruled by mostly by white gay men, and there's no way to say this without sounding homophobic. Theater is one place where being old, white, and queer is uh, probably an advantage. Like, it's not a good example, but, but you were saying? <laughs> right. No, it has. I mean, I think there's this interesting, long-standing, I would even dare to say historical connection between gay men, especially quote-unquote creative gay men, and white women in power. I actually wrote a piece about this a long time ago about the fag-hag economy. And it isn't in evidence anymore because, of course, you know, gay politics, the visibility of gay people, queer people now has just exploded in, in excellent ways, right? For all the good reasons, it exploded into something else. So, but it, there was a time when gay men, and of course, you know, gay white men had to have their fag hag friends with them in order to gain entry into, for instance, the worlds of opera or theater or just social circles, period. There's there's a long history in the creative arts. And I, you know, I just leave it there because I just don't want to have it be a very quick point, which then comes off as homophobic and hateful towards gay men. But there is a long-standing tradition of white gay men in particular, and the ways in which they make inroads into representation. And that often involves deploying other marginalized identities in very particular, specific ways. And that has to do with kowtowing to what is ultimately a white-dominated industry in most places. So that there's a whole long history there. So that doesn't surprise me at all. I did also just very quickly... You know, when you want when you were talking earlier about people using multiple identities, I just I did just want to cop to the fact that I identify publicly in all my little bios as I think I use writer, actor, academic activist. I just want to say I came to it honestly from a time <laughs> when you know I was an academic and then I left academia proper, but I wanted to make a point that one can still be an academic, even if not affiliated. Then, of course, I was a writer and, of course, I was an activist, etc. So I just want to cop to that. <laughs> but but I think it's different if it's true. My right. problem is a lot of these people don't do <laughs> right. any one thing good. They're not no, really writers. No, you're right. They're not yeah, writers. Yeah, no. And their activism, that's why I explicitly said is, um, that their activism is just tweeting about something. Yes. But they're tweeting about not even something really academic like like the academics are just like um the the back the back blurb to uh roxanne gay's bad feminist like like <laughs> like i read bad feminist i, well, I didn't read it because i couldn't finish it but i read the it first was bad. story yeah yeah it was i mean it, she's a 
it should be like bad writer, like it's mm-hmm. not bad feminist. I mean, it's just really badly written. But like before I read it, I know so many people who call themselves like activists or um, organizers or whatever who were mentioning like, some kind of academic tome on feminism. And I read it. I'm like, this is like a Twitter thread. Uh-huh. And even that's not fair because I've seen some pretty good Twitter threads that are informative. So it's like, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, uh, we've had this conversation about Roxanne Gay, right? And we both bemoan the fact that she is one of the world's worst writers to become as famous as she is. And she, she really, a friend of mine said that she can't write above a third grade level, and I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, and she's a poor writer and a poor thinker. Okay. I think I think that makes mm-hmm. it even like. Worse, because there's some people who like you could tell their their skill is really kind of thinking, but their actual mm-hmm. prose is kind of turgid or whatever. Clunky, right? Yeah, clunky. You know, but you can kind of forgive it because for whatever reason. And mm-hmm. but yeah, she's not really the ideas aren't good and the writing is not good, but she's taking it very far. You have to give it to her. Well, the thing is, I think she, like many other people whose careers have been created on social media. She, like many other people, are actually bad. It's are bad thinkers in the sense that their thought really emerges not from anything resembling thought and inquiry, but holding their fingers up to see which way the wind is blowing. So Roxanne Gay, right now, I noticed, you know, very quickly um, skimming some of the links that she's now all about, oh, uh, Dawn is this horrible white woman, blah, blah. That's her take, for instance, on the Kidneygate story. As the, I'm pretty sure that as the facts emerge, she will then move over to, quote unquote, the other side, and you'll say, oh, well, there's a more nuanced take. Again, you know, it's Roxanne Gay's career is entirely due to Twitter as well. I mean, I think that's something that we forget. But I think a lot of people who are, quote unquote, who are considered whatever the time is, thought leaders or whatever they are, a lot of their bad thinking is simply because they're not really thinking. They're just looking. They're looking mm. to see who has, you know, they keep an eye out. And you see this in a lot of Twitter personalities, small, medium, large. <laughs> small, and I mean, in terms of their reach and their influence and so on, you know, you have people with 5,000, people with a million, people with 10 million, whatever. A lot of it is about which way is the wind blowing? And I think, again, for me, the issue there is what does that do to discourse? What does that do to, you, you know, the ways in which we think publicly, uh, culturally about, about anything? And the law, again, I think the problem there is then you, that's how you end up with, for instance, people being, I know that the word is, uh, is fraught right now, but that is how you end up with people being cancelled in different ways. Now, I don't think there's a cancelled culture necessarily, but there is, I think, a way in which ca- you know forces will bow to pressure. For instance, that doesn't actually exist. So, for instance, whenever some you know whenever some publishing entity decides to yank a book, for instance, as they did with a YA novel a couple of years ago. Uh, whenever they do that, it's not because there are any real readers out there who have actually read anything. In fact, the book got yanked, I think, without anyone actually having read it. But they were bowing to Twitter pressure, which is ridiculous because 80% of Twitter people don't actually exist <laughs> in the sense. That, you know, I mean, a lot of the discourse on Twitter is dominated by people who are either bots or who are just there to fling shit and aren't actually reading anything substantively and so on. So if they're not bought, then they're advertising themselves for sale. Right, right. Exactly. 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 So, you know, and that's how discourse gets driven. And that's in the case of the YA writer, I think about maybe six months or eight months later, they quietly recontracted her and the book was published eventually and so on which is how i think you know, which is how you have to do things these days let the pressure build pretend that you know pretend that you are bound to the pressure and then quietly publish the damn book anyway which is what they should have done with woody allen's book but i won't even go there because that just drives me crazy that whole that whole matter but so yeah who is determining what the conversation is Who's actually reading things? Who's actually watching things? I don't know what the answers to those questions are. My suspicion is that a lot of people are actually much better readers and we might want to give them credit for, which is why I think, you know, books like, for instance, American Dirt 
or Sally Rooney's books are successful because there are actual readers who aren't actually on Twitter, for instance, and following that quote-unquote discourse. So I think in some ways things are fine. But in some ways, perhaps things are not. I don't know. I think it all depends on the extent to which you let Twitter drive the discourse around you. And one of the weird things about it is because so many people in media are on Twitter, even though their job maybe mm. is to be a marketer or a publisher or a music A&R or, some, or a TV exec or something that requires you to get eyeballs and to have as broad an appeal yeah. as possible. Like, you know, okay, you work for Hulu or Netflix or whatever. You should not be so beholden to something that really captures only a small fraction of the American population the way you are. But for whatever reason, because so many of these people's whole social life and world is on Twitter, they're actually doing things that are detrimental to their jobs. They're like greenlighting TV shows based on tweets uh, giving people writing gigs uh, based on Twitter followings and so forth. And these things do not <laughs> sell. They just get buzzed because <laughs> all the other Twitterati write about it, you know? And if you don't actually look up the um, mm -hmm. stats for yourself, you have no idea how bad these things are doing. And the last thing that mm -hmm. I would I would say to add to something you said, you were talking about people like uh, Roxanne Gay and these other uh uh, Twitterati, what they do is they just look at which way the wind is blowing and whatever, and just talk about whatever the hot topic is or change their, you know, opinion for it. But I think what makes it worse, right, to go back to the affirming and validation thing is there were always some people who were too guilty of chasing topical, you know, things, but at least they were like real thinkers. So when you read them, they were always talking about like the newest hot thing, but they would try to actually write something thoughtful about it. Maybe that thoughtful thing would age like room temperature milk mm. but at least, but maybe it wouldn't because it was actually some thought to it so that mm. even if the topic was dead, you could at least um, appreciate the quality of thought. All right, y'all. So that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good <laughs>